picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. The Holling Center has held over 50 dialogue conferences on topics in international relations, such as human security, responsible business, the environment, regional policy, and higher education. During those dialogues, we heard fascinating discussions with renowned experts in multiple fields and from many countries. Often following these dialogues, we ponder the question, what's next? To answer that, we decided to bring back some of the experts that continue the discussions and further new ideas. Every two weeks, we'll cover a different topic with two of our past participants. The way we receive information has drastically changed with the permeation of the internet and digital technologies into our daily lives. The rise of social media platforms has radically altered how we consume information and news throughout the world, for better or worse. Furthermore, the new methods with which news and information are packaged, such as blogs, vlogs, podcasts, and more, have created alternative pathways for free speech in environments where conventional media landscape has become increasingly selective, censored, or even oppressive. Citizens began using their personal devices to spread and curate information, Interconnectedness through social media became a method of mobilization. However, these new pathways also meant that information was spreading virally in an unchecked fashion. Disinformation became a powerful tool used by state and non-state actors, public and private entities alike. There is an undeniable paradigm shift in how societies receive their information and news and how journalists produce it. To better understand this landscape, the Holling Center convened a dialogue conference in Tunis in December of 2019. It covered issues such as new business models for media outlets, diversity in newsrooms, new modes of storytelling, trust in the media, disinformation and misinformation, and the trajectory of the journalism profession. So to pick up where we left off, we're pleased to host two participants from this dialogue. Bayan Tal is a media literacy, media and communication specialist with more than 40 years of experience. She began her career as a broadcast journalist, anchor, and later executive at the Jordan Radio and Television Corporation. Tall designed and led the first media and information literacy project in Jordan, and is now part of a team of experts working to integrate media information literacy into grades K-2 through 12. Bayan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Fatima Baja works with the new initiatives team at the International Center for Journalists to help develop new and innovative projects that enable journalists around the world to serve and empower their communities. She manages the proposal development process and identifies new funding and partnership opportunities to advance ICFJA's mission of raising the quality of journalism worldwide. Fatima, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. And it's nice to see you again and to see Bayan again. It's great to see and hear both of you again. So little did we know that two weeks after our dialogue finished in Tunis, there would start to be these little drips of a story coming out of China about 40 some odd people that had a very strange case of pneumonia. We didn't know it at the time, but that was going to be an earthquake that really dealt with many of the topics that we discussed at our dialogue program and amplified both the good and the bad of some of the things that journalists have to deal with on a regular basis. 
And so I'd like to start the conversation today realizing the not only the the earthquake that COVID started, but also the, the real breadth of major global issues and global conversations that have been had since that our dialogue. You know, how has the media landscape had to adapt to not only this deluge of information and challenges and major global conversations, but also how have we dealt with the deluge of misinformation, you know, about the virus, about politics? What do you think media organizations have been doing and have they been doing enough to mitigate all of these these major factors? You know, sure. just yeah. giving a bit of a picture of where journalism and journalists stand right now and what the main challenges they're facing. Um, because I think it's also important to note that journalists are very much, we're very much and are still very much at the front lines of this challenge. You know, when the pandemic started, they were reporting, they were still reporting from the field. Um, many of them didn't even have the protective equipment that they needed and were still sort of like putting themselves in a position of risk to deliver information about a fast changing and unpredictable um, virus. Um, and I think in some ways, the dialogue that we had in 2019 actually offers a really great lens for us to contextualize the challenges that they're facing right now um, and, and maybe offers a bit of a roadmap for us as we move forward. Um, and at the time, I highlighted some of, the, some of the findings from a study that my organization, the International Center for Journalists, uh, did called the State of Technology and Global Newsrooms where we studied the, um, how journalists and newsrooms around the world were adapting to the digital era. Um, you know, and we highlighted some of the main challenges, which are, you know, unsurprising challenges maybe, but, you know, of course they still persist. Um, these are, you know, finding new revenue streams for news organizations, um, building audience trust, and keeping a loyal audience. And it's important to sort of look at these as interconnected challenges, right? Um, for news organizations to succeed and to find revenue, they need to build audience trust. In building audience trust, they can generate revenue, which allows them to produce the reporting that is needed to build audience trust. So it's a cycle, right? It's, these things are connected. Um, and unfortunately, what's happened during the pandemic is there's this, this challenge of trust has been exacerbated, right? And we've seen how a lack of trust in journalism has actually become a life or death issue um, in that when you see, you know, up-to-date information, reliable information coming from expert sources being, you know, discredited or ignored or, you know, just flat out denied, um, there's actual life or death consequences. Uh, and so I would argue in some way that this question of trust has become bigger and more challenging for journalists than the question of mis- and disinformation, which isn't to say that disinformation isn't a challenge, but it's, it's worth looking at it as a problem that's contributing to a greater challenge and a greater ecosystem of distrust within the news, within the journalism industry and the news. And that's making it harder for journalists to do the work that they're already doing. Um, even if they are, you know, even if they are combating misinformation, even if they are filtering out all of the bad news, it's become so much more difficult for them to deliver the news and the information that they need to audiences and to secure their trust um, because of this deluge of mis and disinformation. So I would, I would almost make the case that that building trust should become a priority as opposed to just combating 
Um, if I may just um, a, a note on, on the issue of trust. Uh, the thing is, when we when the pandemic started, um, and different surveys in Jordan and the Arab world show uh, that uh, the Arabs or the majority do not trust the media, they don't trust governments, and they don't trust parliaments. Uh, and for different reasons, of course, that we can go into uh, later on. But the issue of trust, when, when the pandemic started, in Jordan, it actually improved trust in the media because the, the media was covering the pandemic and providing information constantly. So people turned to the traditional media for, for uh, information simply because the government was communicating on a daily basis. And, um, and so there was this interaction between uh, the media, uh, the government and the public. Uh, this didn't last very long, unfortunately, because the government was communicating in one way. Uh, they were providing briefings, but they were not taking any questions. And the, the briefings that were given were uh, very questions, um, and they would not tolerate criticism. So when some media organizations uh, turned to the public to try to see what was happening there, uh, um, like uh, people were suffering because of the lockdown, because uh, Jordan imposed harsh lockdown during the, the, the at the beginning of the pandemic. So people were losing their jobs, people were going hungry, and uh, and and they, but they would not tolerate any criticism from the media. And and two journalists were actually detained for showing Jordanians being critical of the, of those measures. So it so the trust didn't last very long, unfortunately, and the media. Uh, became the mouthpiece of the government for a long time, which also uh, continued uh, discredited the media organizations as well. And they were not challenging the, uh, uh, the official narrative. And that also provided, uh, uh, which meant people were turning back to uh, social media platforms and were getting swamped by all that all, all the, uh, that information and misinformation and, and the, the rest of it. And the media organizations were not doing enough to, um, to challenge what was happening on those platforms. I totally agree with the both of you. And I think there was a similar pattern even here in the United States during those earlier months where I remember a lot of state governors, their daily COVID press conferences were must-watch must television and how the, you know, at least in those early days, I think the, you know, the media cooperated very much so with local governments to make sure that information was being effectively relayed, almost to where there was too much information. I think people started tuning out and I noticed a, a trend that we talked about at the dialogue was a problem, but I think got exacerbated and, and you know, Brian, you brought it up right, is that the media is, was started to become the scapegoat for mm -hmm. any bad news that people didn't want to hear. Or if they started investigating, like in my state, a nursing home or something like that, where figures may have been obfuscated or, you know, covered up or what, you know, then all of a sudden the government itself was then, you know, basically attacking the media. You know, so this this concept of scapegoating and dare I say the old adage of killing the messenger. <laughs> You know, has this gotten globally significantly worse? But do you think that the field of journalism in general and journalists themselves are are now worse off than they were two years ago in terms of um, not only being scapegoated, but 
uh, in some cases, uh, detained, attacked. It's always been a, a challenge to be a journalist in the Arab world because of one main reason, which is lack of freedom and uh, a lot of censorship and oppression by, by the, the state. So it's, uh, and which is, which is why this has contributed to lack of trust by people of uh, the media, because the media is mainly controlled by the state and by governments. The, the thing is now is we have a chance and it was obvious, um, not just during the pandemic, but also during the Arab Spring with the uh, social media platforms where Arabs were able to express themselves freely and break the fear barrier that kept them uh, locked up all those years. And so they were able to communicate, they were able to mobilize using these platforms. So these platforms played a major part in, in their lives, uh, in providing and in, in restoring some of the dignity that they had lost, some of the sense of importance of um, the importance in their right to express themselves and their right to have free press. Unfortunately, that did not last long, but there are organizations that are pushing towards that, towards restoring trust, but towards providing good journalism. And it's extremely challenging and it's very important for international organizations to understand how these media organizations operate in a very challenging environment and try to provide the needed support to keep them going. Yeah, I think just to echo what Bayan said, I think the beginning of the pandemic, and especially in the Arab world, and probably, well, definitely elsewhere as well, is there was an uneasy relationship between governments and media, wherein media that are typically, that typically exist to put a check on governments, um, had to rely on government sources, because in many cases, they were the only sources of information about the pandemic. And so it makes it difficult to sort of invent, to, to put a check on them, right? When you're relying on them as your exclusive source. Um, we did a study in the first, in April of 2020. So during the first wave of the pandemic, where we assessed how journalists were, you know, how they were reacting to the pandemic, how they were reporting on it and, and what impact it had largely on the profession. And we found that a lot of them identified government sources as a leading source of disinformation, but at the same time, a lot of them identify government as a main source of information because you didn't have a choice. Like in those early days, they were the source. Um, and I think it's also important to note that at the time, there was so much uncertainty. And so even if you are, you know, even if you are a media organization that has, that works in an environment wherein you can apply pressure and where you can investigate, it was hard to figure out what to investigate. And there was this constant need to find new and up-to-date information when it was hard for the scientists to give that information, right? Because they were still trying to figure out what the, what the virus was and what it did. And so I think that creates a, a sense of information fatigue among audiences where, you know, you're seeing this information come through the media, it's regularly changing. And so it does feed into this distrust because you see you know, the news has changed overnight. And so you get tired and you're not really as keen on trusting the media, um, which I think is a larger issue of, of reporting on an evolving situation, right? That it's going to inevitably change. And there will, be, there will be some contradictory messaging, but I think it's important to note that as a context of the time. 
you know, obviously we we're there has been trust issues as a result of what's happened in the last in the last couple of years uh, on more than fronts than just the virus. Um, you know, Brian, you were talking about that there were some programs that were trying to work on how we can rebuild civic trust in 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 the media, in journalism, in in journalists. It, can you elaborate a little bit more on on what you mean by that, and you know what you kind of think both of you think are the key things that need to be worked on in order to start to rebuild that trust, um, which has eroded. What we can do is we can restore trust when journalists are allowed to to do their job, but are also um, trained well enough to be able to do their job. Uh, and because of the government control for a very long time, journalists have become mouthpieces and are no longer storytellers. And it's, uh, you know, uh, we find it very difficult when we work with journalists to get them out of the mentality of being public service employees. They think they work for the government. They don't uh, think as journalists with an open mind and who are there to hold uh, authorities accountable. And so we, we you need to basically um, uh, rehabilitate re them uh, into that state of mind and, uh, and help the organizations they work at become more independent. Recently, we've seen protests by uh, uh, reporters working at Jordanian, two of the largest Jordanian uh, newspapers, uh, one of them, the top Jordanian newspaper, uh, the largest, uh, protests by reporters because of financial, they haven't been paid for months. Uh, and so these organizations are facing financial problems. They are not, uh, uh, of course, they are not trusted. And so they haven't been able to do the transition to a digital the transformation, the digital transformation that is needed, as well as the uh, professionalism and, and the proper storytelling that they're supposed to, to do. So this transition has is, is actually killing a lot of the uh, organizations, media organizations in Jordan and in the, uh, a lot of other Arab countries, the censorship, as well as the um, uh, lack of uh, investment in their own staff. Uh, journalists need training, constant training and retraining. And um, uh, you mentioned in the report um, how important it is for journalists because there's a lot of pressure on journalists to, to do all kinds of, to have all kinds of skills now, whether video editing or, you know, they, they have to do their own uh, filming and editing and, and writing for different platforms. And so these multi-skills are uh, not available in addition to what Fatima said, which is basically um, translating the complex issues and making them more uh, understandable. If I may add, it's just an, another issue that is very important, which is media education uh, and media literacy. Uh, media education is, um, is probably the worst in the Arab world. Uh, they, they're constantly taught theories that have nothing to do with reality. Uh, and so when they graduate, they don't know how to uh, operate in a newsroom and they don't know any of their skills, whether storytelling or filming or, or even uh, taking pictures. 
so this needs a huge reform in the media education. Media literacy is becoming an issue in, in the Arab world. In Jordan, Jordan is leading on that front in integrating media and information literacy. You mentioned in the introduction, Michael, that Jordan is drafting like a framework for KG to grade 12 to integrate media and information literacy into these grades. And I think this will help uh, Jordanians understand what media is and how what a journalist is and what, what uh, uh, um, how how it is important for for Jordanians to have good journalists and good media organizations to have access to information and to be able to decipher that information and analyze it and also produce it. So these skills are crucial for, especially at this time with the spread of misinformation and the, the multiple information that they're getting from different sources without being able to understand and, and differentiate between what is right and what is wrong. I just want to add to what Bayan was saying earlier about the distrust in the, in sort of state media in the Arab world. And I think What's interesting about this time, and I think specifically about the Middle East, is the lack of trust in mainstream, typically state-sponsored or you know, partisan media is that it's actually creating an opportunity because there's so much fatigue with that kind of media. And there's so much, you know, there's a lack of trust in government narratives and state narratives in, in the status quo in general, that there's a rising demand for alternative viewpoints, for independent viewpoints. And we're seeing you know, I can at least say in the case of Lebanon, where the, you know, the country is facing numerous overlapping crises, um, there is no appetite for status quo, for narratives that maintain the status quo. Something has got to, something has got to give there. And so you're seeing this rising demand in alternative viewpoints that's actually impacting mainstream media as well, because mainstream media know that in order for me to to remain sustainable and to continue to, to you know, draw eyeballs and get attention, I have to start reporting on issues that my audiences care about. And so I have to stop being a mouthpiece for my political party, for my government. And so I think in some ways it does create an opportunity. Of course, it's, it's early days and I don't mean to be overly optimistic because it's hard to be in this time, but I think, um, I think it's an important moment for us to leverage and I think, again, echoing Bayan and the media literacy and the media education point, when we build, as we continue to build an appetite for this kind of journalism, we might start to see real change happen on the ground and, and within the industry. Here, it's very important for journalists to assume that responsibility and to take responsibility of protecting the profession. Uh, because it is being threatened by this lack of professionalism and populism that is spreading among journalists who want to please the public by just being uh, heroic about their reporting rather than actually uh, uh, providing information. And we saw that example during the, um, uh, the differences between Qatar and Saudi Arabia when journalists at Al Jazeera started attacking Saudi Arabia on their own social media platforms all kinds of profanity was uh, directed at the, the uh, crown prince of, uh, of uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. And then when things shifted and they became good friends, I mean, what happens to the credibility of these journalists who were 
so critical. And suddenly they have to be so nice to this man, to, 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 to the country. And it's ridiculous. It is insane. And we see it on a smaller scale, of course, in, in Jordan, when the government talks about an issue and these, um, what we call hired pens, start writing and they are journalists. They start writing in support of their, and then the government decides to shift roots and then shift policy and completely go against it. And so they, they shift as well and lose credibility with the public as well. And it won't, <laughs> it won't go it won't go anywhere either because like you said audiences are smarter you know we can see when the narrative has changed yes, significantly yes. we can see the 180 flip and i think exactly. even if it works on in the short term something has to change in the long term because we won't we'll stop following the news you know we'll go to other sources one of the kind of the final things i wanted to lead into was that you know the last two years was not only about the virus there were immense social changes and movements that were going on in almost every single country we were discussing in the original dialogue, whether they were political protests, you know, social empowerment movements. Um, and, you know, how, how does a journalist really kind of find them, you know, put themselves in a position where they're not beholden to one side or the other, where you can still understand and get information from the government when needed, but at the same time, still earn the, the respect and the trust many of these social movements that um, are, are, are growing or have come up as a result of the virus triggering all kinds of social change. The work of a journalist is to go after the truth and to, to explain uh, policies to people, to, to, to tell them the impact of these policies on their lives. And this is not happening. They just communicate what the government is doing without really explaining the impact or ne whether negative or positive. And they don't need to, to appease anyone. They just need to do the story and do the story with all sides to the story and give the people who don't have a voice a voice because the government has different platforms. They have uh, different organizations, media organizations that represent them. They own many organizations. So the journalist has a responsibility towards those who do not have a voice. And it is um, important for organizations. We need civil society organizations to be there to support these journalists and support these organizations that do that work professionally. So um, it's important uh, uh, that these organizations continue to exist and expand and flourish uh, because without them, we cannot do anything. We cannot progress. We cannot challenge these uh, um, uh, problems and we cannot uh, 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 continue to introduce whether training or uh, media literacy curricula or any other things that help journalists to continue to do their work. Yeah. And I think beyond just the political independence, financial independence is key because I think, well, A, those two things are linked, of course. Um, but Part of the problem is that even if you go into this profession with the best of intentions and you are a professional journalist and you are extremely well-trained and a great investigative reporter, you're still beholden to the financial, you know, the financial leanings of your institution. And so the challenge becomes, how do you continue operating without, you know, without the resources? And so I think financial independence is going to be 
really important moving forward. And I would hope that what we would see in the future in the Arab world is more independent journalism, more independent institutions, uh, which is of course not easy. But I think another thing that I would recommend to any young journalist and any up and coming media organization as well is start relying on each other, start collaborating, start working together across borders. Even if you don't have the resources yourself, you'd be surprised, you know, how working with others can help you out, how pooling resources with others can help you out. Um, I think recently the Pandora Papers were a really great example of how working together across borders can get you to produce the kind of investigative in-depth reporting that your audiences are craving in the region. You know, Deraj, an independent media organization um, that's based in Beirut, uh, did some fantastic work as part of the Pandora Papers because they were able to pull the resources of others and work with each other across borders. So I think that's, I think that's a trend that we're starting. We, you know, I would hope that that's a trend that we would start to see more and more of as we move forward, and that would hopefully nurture uh, the professional uh, independence and capacity of, of younger journalists. Absolutely. I totally agree, Fatima. And I, I think journalists, also young ones, um, have the opportunity and they have access to, to so much information and so many skills. And I think they can be more creative than uh, many of, of our generation or the, the previous ones, really. And uh, so it's important to use that creativity and that knowledge to, um, to create uh, business models, because we, we do need business, independent business models that can be self-sustainable and continue to grow and prosper. Well, I think that's an excellent place to leave ourselves today so that we picked up where we left off. And now we're going to see where we're going to go on this. Uh, such as um, increasing the trust in, in, in the field and in the journalist and figuring out ways that we can foster that kind of collaboration that can produce really good journalism about the myriad of different subjects that are not COVID related that are going on right now that really deserve that type of coverage. So Bayan and Fatima, I'd like to thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, I look forward to hearing more from both of you in the future and uh, Best of luck and keep in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. The Holling Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to hollingcenter.org.